A scripture reading this evening comes from Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 will read verses 1 through 17, but then focus particularly on verses 13 through 17. reading there in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Well, Congregation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I kind of have one question for you as we begin this uh, sermon and look at this passage, and it's this. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? Every gospel 
includes it as an important moment of the life of Jesus Christ. All four Gospels start with this, but only Matthew records John's objection, which highlights in the Gospel of Matthew something that's going on about why Jesus is baptized. You see, it's easy for us sometimes to look at this and assume, well, this is, that's an easy question, chaplain. That's an easy answer. Everybody gets baptized. It's part of the normal Christian life, right? Whether it's, whether it's for most of us, probably you can remember when, you know, either you put your little kids into a nice white, pretty gown and you invited the whole family to come to your church that Sunday and then you stood up here with the pastor and the pastor asked you questions and you affirmed those questions and and that moment sticks out as part of the Christian life. Or for some of you, perhaps later in life, you had a time when you came to the Lord where God's grace and spirit worked in your heart and brought you to conversion. And right around that time, you also were led to make a baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's part of the Christian life. But neither of those are true here. Neither of those circumstances fit. Jesus clearly isn't an infant. He's 30 years old at this point. He's clearly not just coming to an awakening of faith in any way. He's at the age of 12 already. He had the deepest understanding of faith that baffled all the scribes there in the temple. Right? Of course, there's another element here where John the Baptist points out that his baptism is very different than Christian baptism. In those verses we just read, he pointed out that his is a baptism of repentance. And Jesus doesn't even institute Christian baptism until after the resurrection. That's where we have our baptism, which makes sense because it's after Jesus' resurrection and the new life that's afforded that we can understand how we die to our sins and we rise in the new life that we have in Christ. And so Jesus here has got something else going on. He's receiving a baptism that no prophet that I've ever read in the Bible has received. No apostles have received baptism. And when it comes to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, John the baptizer, John the Baptist says, no, Jesus, don't be baptized. But Jesus says, yes. And then the Holy Spirit says, yes. And the Father in heaven says, yes. And so why was Jesus baptized? And I know you have an outline in front of you, and the theme kind of gives you the answer, I believe. It's so that Jesus would identify with his sinful people to bring us back to God. This morning we talked about how Jesus was isolated from his own family, isolated from his people at a time. And then you look across the bulletin and it says Jesus identifies with his people. So let me try to clear that up here, right? So it's Dr. Venema, I know, so I'm working under one of my own instructors here. But Jesus identifies with us in our sinful condition. And then Jesus is isolated Because of the curse of sin. So in the condition of sin, Jesus identifies with us. In the curse of sin, for that very thing, he isolates himself from us. 
So we'll look at this passage, how Jesus identifies with his sinful people to bring them back to God. And to put it in the most succinct, vivid picture, I would say it like this. Jesus is dunked under so that heaven above opens up for him and for us. That even as Jesus is plunged into the darkness of the muddy Jordan River, and engulfed in that darkness, he comes up to the very radiance of heaven that greets him and greets us. And so I want to explore this question following the story as it's laid out in the Gospel of Matthew. First looking at John's objection in verses 13 and 14, and then Jesus' persuasion in verse 15, and then finally God's approval in verses 16 and 17. And so we pick up very early in the chapter that John is preaching in the wilderness and all are coming out to hear John the Baptist because it's been 400 years since there's been a prophet from God. And so this prophet comes with power and conviction and urgency. He has a divine message to bring that the Messiah was coming. The kingdom of God was at hand and the people needed to repent. They needed to turn back to God. They had been living in wickedness and a righteous God was coming. They had been living in rebellion and their king was coming. They were living in filth and a holy God was coming. And so he calls them to repentance and he pushes that repentance even further by telling them they need to be washed of their filthy ways. And we understand that in baptism there is this washing away of sins. And it was already at this time something that was used ritually. It was not one of the Old Testament sacraments or anything. It wasn't like it was circumcision. But in fact, it was the Gentile converts that when they would convert to Judaism, they would quite often go undergo a ritual washing. They would undergo a baptism as a way to come into God's holy community. And yet the uniqueness of what John the Baptist does here is John the Baptist doesn't say, hey, this is only for the Gentiles. This is only for those who are coming to their faith. John says, all of us, every single one of you, I don't care if your father was Abraham, you need to meet the Lord in repentance. You need to undergo this washing. You need to be cleansed from all of your filth and all of your sin. And so that's the context that Jesus shows up in. And then Jesus comes in verse 13, and and the gospel writer tells us he comes with the very express purpose of being baptized, but John the Baptist doesn't know this. And so as Jesus approaches the riverbanks of the Jordan, John, we read in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist stands up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there in that moment he speaks to the Lamb of God going back to the Old Testament, to that sacrificial lamb, that one that had to be unblemished with no defect No impurity on its body. It had to be that one that symbolizes here in Christ his moral purity before God. 
And even as he's proclaiming the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, in his moral purity, here's the catch, I believe. Jesus gets in line for baptism of repentance. I, I wonder if that threw off John the Baptist's sermon that day. As he's talking about those here who, who need to repent because the Holy One is coming... Then the Holy One shows up and he gets in line and he climbs down the muddy banks of the Jordan to receive the very same thing that he's calling the others to prepare for. And so John the Baptist here objects. He he prevented him, it says. it's, It's quite forcible. He would have forbid the Lord Jesus to come. He says, no, no, no. This should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me. I cannot baptize you. He thinks it's completely inappropriate to receive the baptism. Now, think for a second. To John's objection makes complete sense. And I'll I'll make this, this appeal to the children here because all of you can identify with this at some point. Let's say that you got into an argument with a brother and a sister in the home. And you are not quite convinced that you've done anything wrong yet. Or your parents are not convinced of the righteousness of your cause. And yet they tell you to go apologize to your brother or sister. Probably been there, right? And so maybe you go through it and you would say at some point, well, it's inappropriate. It's fake because I am not convinced I've done anything wrong at this point. And it makes zero sense. And here, I think, John the Baptist is thinking like that as well. Jesus has nothing to personally repent for. Why would he receive the baptism of repentance? It would be inappropriate. But here's the thing. His people do. The people of Israel do have a lot to repent for. And while the leaders of Israel show up out at the Jordan River and they stand on the banks of the river and they sit back and they scoff at God's gracious invitation to repentance there. Instead, Jesus, the true leader of Israel, he accepts the corporate responsibility of his people and he climbs down into the mud with his people there to accept their repentance. And so Jesus tells John, let it be for now. For it is proper, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So that's John's objection. Jesus has nothing personally to repent for. But Jesus points him to the corporate reality of what's going on here. And we consider, secondly, Jesus' persuasion. Now he says it's necessary to do this to fulfill all unrighteousness. Now, you could scour the Old Testament passages and you could look for somewhere where it would say you must be baptized and you won't find it because it's not a particular law. And Jesus is not concerned with personal observance of a particular law for his own personal righteousness at this point. No, he's speaking to the entirety of God's law, to the fulfillment of righteousness of God's law as it relates to God's people. 
If you remember in Deuteronomy 28, it spoke of the blessings for obedience in the covenant. And it also spoke of the curses for disobedience. That there would be righteousness that would be extended to his people. And that was the only way they would ever receive the blessings of God. The prophets would look for that. Jeremiah would talk about when the branch, the the king of the branch would come in Jeremiah 23. His name would be the Lord, our righteousness. One who would bring righteousness to them that they could not achieve on their own. That great passage we know in Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, quite often when we think of that passage, and we're thinking of the one who would be righteous for us, and the one who would be numbered with the transgressors, our minds quite often go to Good Friday, right? Where we see Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves. But I would submit to you that also in this passage in Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus numbered with the transgressors when he cues in line for a baptism of repentance. That already now at the very beginning of his ministry, he's beginning to accept and embrace the calling of God that he would stand in line with the sinners. That he would not be on the pulpit. He doesn't come up next to John the Baptist in the middle of this fire and brimstone sermon and say, Preach it, John. You tell him. No, he, he gets down into the mud with all those who are full of repentance. And he joins the repentful people of Israel. He's numbered with the transgressors. And when you start thinking about it, Baptism Sunday and Good Friday really are not that far apart. Even in the language Jesus uses, because multiple times in the gospel he'll speak of his baptism that he has yet to undergo. Right? Luke 12, verse 50, he speaks of, I have a baptism to undergo, speaking of the crucifixion. He says, oh no, how it distresses me to think about it. That he thinks about the curse of this baptism. Everything that he's accepting when he climbs into the water, when he accepts the sinful condition of his people, and the curse that it will bring upon him. I think of Psalm 69, a psalm that's attributed to the Lord frequently. And in the beginning it speaks about drowning. You ever have an instance where you felt like you were drowning? You probably remember it in your life. I remember one time I dove into a pool here in the Chicago area as a young kid, and there was covers over it. And I came up underneath, gasping, trying to find the way out. Because being plunged under the waters fears and, and brings about an intense reality that death is close. And so Psalm 69, the verse two verses says, Save me, O God. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry clay. There is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters, and the floods have engulfed me. And here's 
Here's the reality of Jesus' baptism. The first baptism by John the Baptist was only a symbol. It was a symbol of what Jesus would do. It was a symbol of how Jesus will unite and lead his people through repentance. But the second baptism that comes three years later is the very death itself that he feared. And so if I could tie that again with that common thread that we talked about in the beginning. Here he identifies with his people. He's in solidarity with their sins in the muddy waters of the Jordan. But later on, he goes where we cannot. He goes in solitude when he's plunged beneath. And where he does not come up until the Lord would raise him up. Jesus faces death alone there. And so he says this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness because he understands at this point that he stands in our place, in our sin. So John the Baptist yields to this request. He knows that one who is greater to him is there in front of him. And so Jesus is plunged and dunked under the water, a sign of a baptism that is yet to come. And as he does so, his earthly ministry changes and begins in earnest at this point. But heaven opens above as he does this. And that's the last thing I want to look at with you. How heaven opens above as God answers and approves of what the Son has done. The Spirit says yes. God the Father says yes. And heaven above is open to him and also to us. It's important to say that. It's open to us here because Jesus receives nothing that he did not have from eternity with with the Father already. The whole baptism to identify with us in our sins, to make repentance there, is for us. And so when heaven opens to him, it opens to us. And I'll just point out three things the passage gives us as children of God. It gives us access to heaven. It gives us anointing from heaven. And it gives adoration from heaven. And all three of those are found in our passage in the last two verses. He emerges from the water and the veil that separated heaven and earth is pulled back. The Gospel of Mark says it so much more vividly. It says that the the heavens are torn open. And so in this moment, there is an opening between earth and heaven in such a way that the radiant glory of God is inescapably near in that moment. And the one who repents of your sins is welcomed by heaven. Let that think, just let that sink in for a second. That the one who repents for your sins, who stands soaking wet, they are stenched in your sin, is welcomed by heaven. That should give us the greatest motivation in our own repentance. That when the Lord Jesus Christ modeled repentance for us, the Father opened up heaven and called out his love upon him. It's a great motivation for us in our daily repentance. You know, heaven's only closed to those who are stubborn, who are hard, unrepentant in their heart. It's the only thing that will close heaven. If you confess your sins, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just. 
He forgives all unrighteousness. And hope heaven is wide open. That's why we have it every week in our worship. That's why we have the reading of God's law so that we might be reminded of our sins so that we would make confession of that sin and hear those glorious words of assurance. Because in that moment, the gospel is being lived out. God's love and adoration is being poured out upon us. And all of that is just fitting us for heaven, is leading us again to him through a model the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us. That heaven is open, that there's full access, there is acceptance and life in the presence of God. Romans 6 verse 10, as it talks about baptism there, that we've been baptized with the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, the death that he died once for all, but now the life that he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive unto God. That you stand in the very presence of God. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to live into that reality. Because of what Christ has done. So heaven opens and showers of blessing are poured down upon his people. Access to heaven is given. But notice secondly, the anointing gift of the Holy Spirit is given. And so the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of the dove. And settles upon Jesus Christ. In answer of Isaiah 42, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. That was always the promise to God's people. And we sang about that in the song service before this, right? The three offices of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And those offices were always anointed by the spirit in the Old Testament so that they could have the power of God to fulfill the duty that God had given to them. And so Jesus Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, all means he will be filled with the Spirit of God. So that every duty that God has entrusted to the Son, he will faithfully complete as our father, I mean as our prophet, priest, and king. And so there is nothing that Jesus as the Christ, the Son, the one who is anointed, is not able to do in terms of our salvation. A great popular song right now, Jesus is mighty to save, actually comes from Zephaniah 3.17, but he's mighty to save. Jesus Christ is anointed by the Spirit so that he will do his work and he will do it to perfection and completion. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus in chapter 9. He says that Jesus offered himself up to the, I'm sorry, he offered himself up as an unblemished gift through the power of the eternal spirit. It was the spirit that drove him, the divine help, the power, the third person of the Trinity that led him to that. And again, that is given to you. That's why you're called a Christian, right? Lord's Day 12, because you are anointed with the Spirit of God as a prophet, as a priest, to confess his name, to to offer your life as a sacrifice of gratitude and thanksgiving for the salvation that you have, to fight against sin in this life, and to rule with him in all eternity. And at times, if you're struggling in your sin, I would point you to Jesus' baptism when the Spirit of God came down upon Christ 
And that same Spirit sets upon us. And there's times when you feel you can't defeat that sin. Or there's a calling God's pressing upon your life and you're saying, no, it's not me, it's somebody else, I can't do that. Or you're growing weary in your walk and you're wondering, I don't know, Lord, if I can go another week. I don't know if I can handle this person. This situation seems too much to me. The Spirit of God is upon you. Because Christ's anointing is shared with you. We have access. We've been anointed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice finally the adoration that comes from the Father. A voice from heaven speaks out and it says this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this is for the bystanders, perhaps. Here's the Son, here's the King, the one spoken of in Psalm 2, the Son who would rule and conquer the nations and crush them. Kiss the Son while you can, lest you perish. It's spoken for John the Baptist, who in this moment of revelation, John's Gospel says, he knew Jesus to be the Son of God, but I also believe it was spoken to Jesus. In a moment where God the Father expresses and affirms his own love for his eternal Son. And and I'm convinced as both from my own personal life and as a father and as a counselor, I am convinced that this, this is true. Every earthly father cannot show enough a love and affection to their sons and daughters. And cannot say that enough in their lives. And that's true here in this moment, that God the Father doesn't assume Jesus knows this. He doesn't assume Jesus knows the love that I have for him. He looks down upon Jesus in this moment where Jesus is soaking wet in our repentance. And he says, I love you. And I'm well pleased with you. And it's that perfect love and that adoration that the Father delights in the Son and takes great pleasure in His eternal Son that they move forward in this ministry. Although the people of God would take the same adoration and delight in the Son that the God the Father has in the Son in our lives. And that we would know that this perfect love is extended to us as well. You know, it it comes to us in in this form in our very baptisms. I was educated very early on, before I even baptized one of my children here. All all five have come. That used to be the reason I would get here frequently. is because we had another child that needed to be baptized. And I, I was told by the pastor that I make sure you say you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because in the name might convey the mode of baptism or the way of baptism. But the Greek in the original says you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that speaks of the very destination of our baptism. 
that when you're baptized into the name of God, you receive the triune covenant name of God. You're brought into the family of God. You're adopted, and your name is God's. And he speaks that same love to us. Hear him say, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I'm well pleased with you. I take great pleasure in you. Oh, my prayer is this, that we would hear him say that and respond with the same warmth and affection that he has for us. That it would pierce all the lies that would say the opposite in our lives. And we would be able to serve him all the more free and all the more faithfully. Because you see, Jesus came and just drenched himself and plunged himself under in our repentance so that he could come up from the water and present us to God. We have access before his throne. We are anointed by his spirit and we are adored by our Father. To him be the glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the story of your love to us that drove you to action in sending your Son and in the Son's willingness to stand in our behalf to take our sin and to take it to the cross alone. Lord, that when he rose, we might rise with him. And so I pray that every single one of us here would know that resurrection life, would know the presence we have before you, that we would walk mindful of that in the week to come, that we would walk empowered by your spirit, which is promised to us again and again. We would know your love through the gospel. Lord, 